this morning, um, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, as Connor just read. I would invite you to turn your Bibles there, and if I have not met you, my name is Rob, and I am the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. We are a new church here in Westerville. We are very grateful that you would join us this morning as we continue our study through the book of Mark. We intentionally go passage by passage. We started Mark in December of 2020, and you can see we're only to chapter 11, so we have gone passage by passage, and we've intentionally done that. We think the best thing for God's people is to know who God is, and the primary way to know who God is is by seeing what he says about himself in his word. So we have marched through this text, and we now find ourselves in Mark chapter 11. And growing up, and still today, but not as much, I was big time when I was growing up a fan of baseball. Baseball was my thing. I loved playing baseball all summer, start in the spring, play all summer, continue to play in the fall, and the worst thing about winter is that you can't play baseball in Ohio. So I love baseball. And I, for those of you who are familiar with baseball, the Major League Baseball has two leagues. They have the American League and they have the National League. And so I have a team that I root for in each league. So in the American League, it's the Cleveland Indians, and the National League, it's Pittsburgh Pirates. Those are the two teams that I root for. Now, when I was younger, I had a favorite player. Because as a kid, you have your favorite players. And my favorite player from the Cleveland Indians was Coco Crisp. And he was an outfielder, not a name of a cereal. So Coco Crisp, outfielder for the Cleveland Indians. I loved the way that he played the game because he was quick, he was scrappy, he wasn't the biggest guy on the field, he wasn't the power hitter, but he could find a way to get on base and he could track down a ball like nobody's business. So I went to a few Cleveland Indians games while he played for the tribe and there was one time before a game when players are signing things for for kids, I was up there, he signed a baseball for me. I was thrilled. Then another time I went, he was playing left field, and he caught the last out of the inning. And I'm down the left field line, and he's running toward the dugout, and he sees me and tosses me the ball. And I am on cloud nine. My favorite player has signed a ball for me. He's tossed me a ball. I love watching this guy play. I now love him more because he recognized me. This is amazing. Reason I love watching him play is because I found the way that he played the game to be absolutely beautiful. Small, scrappy, he played small ball, wasn't a power hitter or anything like that. I've already gone over that. But the way that he played baseball, in my view, was a beautiful thing to watch, which is indicative of who we are as people. Because as people, we recognize and we are drawn to that which we find beautiful. We are we recognize and we are drawn to the things that we find beautiful. And this morning, as we go through this passage, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, we are seeing the king of glory, the most beautiful thing in all creation, drawing near his fallen people. The theme that we've been saying throughout Mark is that it's God restoring his wayward people. God's people have gone astray. You read the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel consistently going astray from God. And now God comes in the flesh to restore his wayward people. The king of glory, the most beautiful thing in all creation, humbly comes to his people. This is such a gift. And this morning, 
if we see Jesus as the King of glory that he is, our lives will look radically different. If we see Jesus for who he is as the King of glory, our lives will be radically different. And so as we've gone through Mark, we recognize that in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he consistently said, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, and be buried, and I'll raise on the third day. Jesus has consistently said this, said it in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And then as he, got, as he and the disciples got closer to Jerusalem, he begins to be more intentional with the way that he talks about discipleship. And so now, as we get into this passage, we see Jesus finally getting to Jerusalem. We spent the first 10 chapters of Mark leading up to this, and now the last third of the book is focused on the last seven days of Jesus' ministry. So these next seven days will encompass the rest of the book. Now, with that, some of you may have heard of Passion Week. This, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, is the first day of Passion Week. It's known as Palm Sunday. So that marks off this first day of the last seven days of Jesus' life. So I said that the rest of the book will cover it, the majority of the rest of the book. There will be a portion at the end where it's post-resurrection. So before we get in, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to gather, to gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear what your words have to say, to be reminded who the King of glory is. And Lord, as the song sang, your glory is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Help us to recognize that this morning. Help us to see that. Help us to be drawn to that. To find you as the most glorious and the most beautiful thing. God, we pray for other churches that are preaching that this morning. Think of First Baptist Church of Westerville here, just right down the road. We ask that the gospel will continue to be proclaimed there. That you would bless them, that you would allow them to see fruit. We pray the same for Sojourn Church in Louisville, a partner church of ours, who have decided to come alongside with the gospel work that's being done here in Westerville through our church. God, we pray for your blessing on them, for their generosity, for their prayers. We also ask that they would continue to be faithful beacons of the gospel and that there would be much fruit from that. God, this morning, as COVID continues on and we see it be saturated in the media, Lord, we pray for hospital workers. I'm sure they're exhausted. Lord, we are grateful for those who put themselves on the front lines, and God, we do pray for their safety, and we pray also that you would eradicate COVID. Lord, give us wisdom on how to navigate during these days, and now we ask that as we march through this text, you would show us clearly who you are, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, you'll see in your bulletins that there are three points. We have the King of Glory draws near, the King of Glory is recognized, and the King of Glory enters in. So we will go through each of those points, starting with the King of Glory drawing near. So as Connor read, we see there right in verse 1, that Jesus and his disciples, they are drawing near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. 
So we've talked about how they are, they've been making their way to Jerusalem. This is what the ministry has been building up to, and they've been marching their way to this point, and they're now, they're not quite in yet, but they are near. And as they prepare to head into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus makes a request of his disciples. And he says, two of them, they're unnamed, but he says to two of them, go to nearby village, and there you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So we see Jesus requesting a colt. In Matthew's gospel, it's identified as a donkey. But what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. So in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies, all of which fulfilled by Jesus. And so now we see Jesus fulfilling one of those. And that prophecy is Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see Jesus requesting this colt, requesting this donkey, because he knows that as he enters into Jerusalem, where his ministry is going to, his earthly ministry is going to conclude, he knows that there is a prophecy to fulfill, and he is doing that right here by telling his disciples, go to the nearby village, ask for that donkey, because I need it. Now there's an interesting note that he requests one, a donkey that no one has ever sat on. Seems like a weird thing to ask. But the reason that this, he's asking this is because it was Jewish custom that a king would acquire for himself a beast of burden, a donkey or a horse, that no one has ever sat on. Nobody sits on the king's horse. And so when Jesus requests a donkey that no one has ever sat on, he is doing a kingly thing. But earthly kings tend to ride in on great horses. Jesus, the king of glory, humbly rides in on a young donkey. He enters in humbly. He was born into this world humbly, and now he enters into the the peak of his ministry humbly, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, Jesus humbly enters in. It would be like it would be like a US president instead of riding in on Air Force One being given a huffy bicycle to ride in on. Now depending on your view of the current president, you might say that yeah, he should ride in a huffy bicycle. So just think of your favorite president and then consider the disparity between the US president riding in on a huffy bicycle. It's not fitting for the position, but even more so, not fitting for the king of glory, Jesus, King Jesus, to be riding in on a young donkey. But ride in, he does. And what we see in verses, starting in verse 4, is that they went away, they found it, and Jesus gave them a heads up as to what to say if somebody were to question them. And what we see, starting in verse 4, is that they come across somebody, 
who does exactly what Jesus anticipated. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Just a quick note on that. It's another example of Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowing nature. He is God in the flesh. He is all-knowing. So Jesus, saying this ahead of time, he knows that they're going to run into somebody. And so we see just the very next few verses that that takes place. So Jesus is all-knowing. His omniscience is put on display yet again. We saw it in Mark 8 when he talked about his death, burial, resurrection. We saw it in Mark 9, the same thing. Mark 10, now Mark 11, we see his omniscience on display yet again. Jesus knows all things. And this Jesus, who is the King of glory, who is God in the flesh, is drawing near to his wayward people, and he's doing it humbly. He's doing it in a lowly way. God is transcendent, which means he is beyond all things. All things may come and pass, but he will remain. Jesus is, is not going to be defined by the present day. God is transcendent. He's beyond that. Yet, as we see here, he is also imminent. That is the unique thing about Christianity. That God, who is transcendent, who is sovereign over all things, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, he, yes, is transcendent, but then he enters in. He enters in humbly. He enters in lowly. He sees our brokenness. He sees that we've gone wayward, and yet he enters in and he comes close. He is imminent as well as transcendent. Christian, don't lose sight of the imminence and the, the nearness and the closeness of God. If he has drawn near, even in our brokenness, even in our waywardness, then what that means is that even when we do continue to do things that are consistent with brokenness and waywardness, that is not going to mean that he's immediately going to forsake you. He drew near when you were broken. He drew near when you were sinful. And so when you fall, it's not like you went from sinful to not sinful back to sinful. You are still a fallen, sinful person. And so if you were to sin, Jesus is not going to forsake you. However, we must do what is consistent with Christians. That's to confess that sin, to acknowledge that it has been paid for by Christ alone. So there's a tension to be held there that, yes, we need to take our sin seriously. We need to repent of it. We need to continue to walk in righteousness. But when we do fall, if our salvation was not contingent on our works, then that means that Jesus will not forsake us if we happen to sin. Hopefully that makes sense, trying to walk that line carefully. And if you are in here this morning and you're not a Christian, Maybe God feels far off. The imminence of God seems like a strange thing. The reason that it feels like a strange thing for you is because it should be a strange thing. God is far off from you if you have not embraced Christ. and He will remain far from you. In order to experience the nearness, the imminence of God, you must accept Christ encourage you this morning to accept God in the flesh. Accept his son who has come near for us to bring us back. If you do not accept him, then God will remain far off from you. 
And church, this is an opportunity for us to know that God has drawn near and to take that message to those who need to hear it. We shouldn't be just a holy huddle coming here each Sunday. It's important to be here, grateful that you are here. But this message can't stay here. We've got to take this out to those who need to hear it. The transcendence and the imminence of God, that God in his holiness and his righteousness has come near to bridge the gap so that we can be drawn back to him. But him drawing near means very little if we're not able to recognize him. And so you see in your second point, the king of glory is recognized. How is he recognized? Well, we see in verse 7 through 8 that they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt, on the donkey, to use somewhat as a saddle. And Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, what's going on here? So the taking off of the cloaks and the putting them on the donkey underneath Jesus and putting them on the road underneath the donkey that Jesus is riding on, it's an outward sign of them saying, this man is king. We see in 2 Kings 9 that there's a wicked king. King Ahab. And God has said to his prophet Elisha that King Ahab is no longer going to be king. You're going to anoint someone else. And it's King Jehu. And so Elisha goes to King Jehu and he's told by God to anoint him as king and then to flee. Anoint him and get out of there. So he goes to him. He takes him into a room. He pulls him away from the crowd, takes him into the room and he tells Jehu that God is anointing you king over Israel. And then Elisha bolts, and King Jehu has to come back out to people, and the the people that are around him say, what did that crazy guy tell you? How how it goes, if you read the story, they say, what did that crazy man say to you? And he said, ah, nothing important. They said, no, it's something important. What was it? And he said, he anointed me king over Israel. And what the people do, we read in 2 Kings 9, verse 13, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So what's happening here? Jesus, getting on a donkey, before he gets on, they take off their garments and they put it underneath Jesus to, as an outward sign of saying, we are accepting you as king. And then they continue to do that by laying it on the ground that the donkey is going to be riding over, saying that this man, we are acknowledging through an outward sign that he is king. Then the leafy branches, other accounts say palm branches. Palm branches are the Jewish sign for nationalism and victory. So these palm branches are signs of Jewish nationalism and victory. So what we see happening is we see Jesus getting on a young donkey, humbly entering into Jerusalem. And what's happening is that they are putting their, their cloaks underneath him to say, yes, he's king. And then they're taking palm branches and saying, we have confidence in him for victory. It's Jewish nationalism and victory is what the palm branches represent. And so they're saying, this man is king and it's in him that we are trusting for victory. It'd be similar to us having a July 4th parade where we have American flags waving and we are remembering the victory that we have that secured our independence. Okay? 
So this is what's happening. Ha they have signs of Jewish nationalism, and they are using those signs to proclaim victory, to show their confidence in victory, and they are showing that their confidence is in victory is in this man that's riding on a donkey, that he is the king. And they've shown that by taking off their cloaks and putting their cloaks underneath him. And then, those are actions, and now we see words. So verse, verses 9 through 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who come, comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna literally means save us, we pray. So not only are they showing with their cloaks, not only are they showing with the palm branches, but now they use their words to say, save us, we pray. We are trusting you as king to bring victory, and now we're asking you to save us. We trust that you can do that. They're recreating Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, which reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They say, save us, we pray. Say, Hosanna. Literally, save us, we pray. And give us success. See the palm branches. We trust you for victory. We trust you for success. And the kingdom of our father David is this messianic title. See this promise, this promise that from the line of David, there would be a Messiah, that there would be a king who would bring about this victory. They are saying, this man, Jesus, is he. And they recognize him in three ways. We see this in the text. They acknowledge his kingly status by putting the cloaks underneath him. They call to him for salvation, Hosanna. And they express their confidence in his victory with the palm branches. Those three things. They identify, they acknowledge his kingly status. They call to him for salvation. And their confidence is in him for victory. Now... I say that because we know the rest of the story that these same people who welcomed him into Jerusalem are the same people who eventually nailed him to the cross. So something changed. Clearly their understanding was not the right understanding. They had principles of it. They had, they had glimpses of it, but they didn't have a more full understanding. So when they saw king, they thought king over their own little territory. When they saw salvation... They thought salvation from the Romans. The Romans are occupying our territory. He's the one who's going to save us from them. And when they saw victory, they saw him establishing an earthly kingdom. What we see is that Jesus is not just king over their own little territory, but he's king of all creation. It's not salvation from the Romans, but it's salvation from our sin. The wages of sin is death. All of us are deserving of eternal separation from God. We're all deserving of God's wrath. So when we think about what did Jesus come to save us from, it wasn't just earthly things. They had their minds focused on Roman oppression, but Jesus was doing more than that. And then when it comes to victory, they thought it was an earthly kingdom, when in fact he is creating a heavenly kingdom that's eventually going to consume earth. So they knew aspects of the Messiah, but they didn't truly know the Messiah. And all of that changes within a week. Within a week. And so for us this morning, how do we view Jesus? When it comes to him as king, what's he king over? Is he king over your Sundays? Is he king over your entire life? 
Is there any aspect of your life that you have not given over to him? Whether that be relationships, whether that be career, whether that be fill in the blank. Just what is it that we have not yet surrendered to King Jesus? Because we have two opportunities or two displays. We have one where it's focused on the here and now, king over the here and now, or king over all things. I would encourage you this morning, allow Jesus to be king over all things. And salvation from what? Jesus is, is more than just fire insurance. Jesus is more than, as some would peddle the gospel, they would say that if you have Jesus, then you can get all these other things. What is Jesus to you? What is he saving you from? Are you understanding the gospel? We are separated from God. And that only through Christ can we be reunited to him. And then victory. Victory over what? Maybe you're wrestling with sin this morning. If you're a Christian, you will continue to wrestle with sin. But Jesus provides victory. Are we trusting in Christ for that victory? And ultimately, that victory will come when he returns, when we go to be with him in glory. However, we must continue to fight, and our hope must continue to be in Jesus, that he will provide victory. And so the king of glory, as you see in your bulletin, he draws near. Then the king of glory is recognized. And now finally, the king of glory enters in. We see Jesus in verse 11, entering the temple. We read, and he entered, the, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so now Jesus is no longer near. He's now entered in. So we've seen him making his way. He's drawn near, and now he's entering in. Now there's a big difference between near and in. Danielle and I visited Washington, D.C., and we got near the White House. We did not get in. Earlier in the year, we saw the difference between being near the Capitol building and being in the Capitol building. Okay? There's a big difference between near and in. We see Jesus now entering in. He went into the temple. Now notice, this is, this is really important to notice. This is the, the climax of this whole passage. Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany and Bethphage, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. And they get the young donkey, and they set Jesus on it. There's all kinds of outward signs acknowledging him as king, trusting in him for victory. And then they make their way into Jerusalem from Bethany, Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. Now this is very significant because of Ezekiel chapter 11. Now, when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, this is right around that time, 583 B.C., God gave Ezekiel, his prophet, a vision. And Ezekiel looked over Jerusalem and what he saw was the glory of God being removed from the temple and being placed in what the text reads in the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So the glory of God is being removed from the temple and being placed in the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now if you look at a map, what you'll see is that on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives, right where Jesus is coming down from with his disciples. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So see the glory being removed from the temple, from the prophet uh, Ezekiel seeing that. And now what we see, 
is Jesus as king on a donkey, coming humbly, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, entering from the Mount of Olives where the glory of God was placed, bringing it back in to Jerusalem, back in to the people of God, and he goes right into the temple, the heart of religious practices within the city. Now later, as we see the glory of God returning to God's people, later in Ezekiel 11, or just before that passage in Ezekiel 11, here's what we read. It says, God says, and I will give them one heart. He's talking about his people. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So now we see in that same chapter, Ezekiel 11, where the glory of God is removed and placed on the mountains to the east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives, we now see in this passage, God incarnate, the radiance of the glory of God, coming from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem, entering into the temple where sacrifices are typically held. But then what does he do? It seems anticlimactic. But we read that he goes out. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Seems anticlimactic, but here's the point, is that the glory of God, where God's presence is, was in the temple. It was removed, and then Jesus, the glory of God, comes back, and then he leaves the temple to go be with the disciples. The presence of God is now no longer confined to a temple, but is within the people of God. If you are in Christ, you are a portable temple of God. So this morning, we see that the glory of God has returned to his people in Christ. In no other way. Not in any other religion, not in anything that the world can offer. You cannot experience the fullness of God in any other way. You can see glimpses of him in various ways. You can see glimpses of him in creation. But you will never experience the fullness of God apart from Christ. And now we see that the fullness of God, the glory of God, is no longer confined to a physical place, but it's within his people. He has placed himself in his people through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. So Christian, there are needs all around us. We want to be a church that's missionally engaged. I've said this before, and it's not a phrase unique to me. I stole it from a friend. But if the Spirit of God is inside of you, and you see opportunities, you see people who are far from God, if they are near to you, then they are no longer far from God because you are a portable temple of the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you, see those needs that are in the community, see those needs that are near you, whether that be in the grocery store, whether that be at work, whether that be on another side of town, whether that be next door. See the needs that are around you and you as someone who's equipped with the Holy Spirit, step into them. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Question for you this morning that put a rock in your shoe. How long will you resist God from entering in? 
He has come near. Will you recognize him? Will you let him enter in? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How long, non-Christian, will you resist God from entering in? We encourage you to let God into your life through the person of Jesus. And notice Jesus does not overlook the hurting here. He sees this whole passage is here because we are fallen. We are in need of reconciliation. He sees the hurting, the waywardness of his people, and he steps into it. So this morning, if you're hurting, if you're going through something painful, be encouraged that God has not over, overlooked that. He has not forgotten you. He is aware of it. The New York Times in 2013 had an article that they titled, Why We Love Beautiful Things. And in it, saw something interesting that I wanted to share with you. They, they said, you know beauty when you see it. You want it too. Brain scan studies reveal that the sight of an attractive product can trigger the part of the motor cerebellum that governs hand movement. Instinctively, we reach out for attractive things. Beauty literally moves us. Beauty literally moves us. What we see in this passage is the king of glory, the most beautiful thing in all creation, drawing near, coming humbly to his people. And now we have to decide, are we going to reach out? Are we going to recognize him as king this morning? Have you recognized him? Do you recognize him for who he is? Not who the, the Jews thought he was as he entered into Jerusalem, but who he really is. It's one of the important, that's why, that's why we try to unpack as much as we can in the text because we want you to see clearly who God is. We see that most clearly in the person of Jesus, the King of glory. And so just like Israel and just like Jerusalem, we have gone astray. All of us. No one is unique in that. We've all fallen away from God. We've all pursued our own, our own passions. We've all rebelled against this king. We are wayward people. But God has entered in to restore his wayward people. So anyone who would call on him, anyone who would confess their rebellion against him, anyone who would say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm trusting you, Jesus, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, looking to you as my treasure, you be my king in all areas. Anyone who would confess that to him could be brought near to God. The God of glory has come near to restore us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful that you love us, that you in all your glory sent your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for leaving the right hand of the Father, for condescending down to broken humanity, to being born humbly in a manger, to entering into the apex of your ministry humbly on a donkey. Thank you, King of glory, 
for finding a way to restore us, for establishing that way, for calling us to yourself. We ask that you would call us all the more closer to you. We pray that anyone in here who may not know you would call out to you, that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would help us to see the needs around us as portable temples. Help us to step into the needs that you have uniquely placed near us. Just as you, Jesus, have stepped into the need for us. We thank you for that. We pray this in your strong name. Amen.